Well, we come this morning to the announcement of an impending birth. And it's not the first that we find in Luke. If we were to go back and read from the very beginning, we would find that John the Baptist's birth is the first one that's mentioned. But this one, the, the one whose sandals the first is unworthy to untie, this one, this one is the birth of Jesus. And in Luke's account, these two births actually are set side by side on purpose so that we can take note of the similarities and so that we can also take note of the differences between them. The parallels really are quite striking. But what's particularly striking to me is that in the first announcement concerning John the Baptist, this angel appears in a public setting um, at the temple to a priest who is a wife, who is a wife of one who's also from a, or, or this wife is also one from a priestly heritage. And so it seems like there's this public setting, uh, not tons of fair, fanfare, but but at least some attention drawn to the greatness of what's taking place. But to this other one, to this other one, this angel appears to a young virgin in a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And we might ask the question, what's Nazareth? In fact, Nathaniel in the scriptures a bit further on is going to ask that same thing. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because after all, Nazareth, Nazareth wasn't the New York City of the world. It wasn't the Paris, France. It wasn't Washington, D.C. It wasn't London. It wasn't Tokyo. It wasn't Dubai. If I could say it this way, and I mean no offense because I actually love this place, it was Elkins, Arkansas. <laughs> it was Elkins, Arkansas. Nazareth was an agrarian society. Uh, it was in a region that wasn't well-respected in this region of Galilee, it was just simply farm country, is what it was. So what great thing or what great person could ever come from a place like Nazareth? This is the place where this takes place. This announcement of this particular birth. And in fact, the, the place where this takes place actually reflects the life of this one who's being announced in a lot of same ways. That is to say, it reflects his humility. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Humble beginnings. And yet, even as humble as Nazareth might have been back there, who today knows nothing of the place of Nazareth? From humble beginnings to the wonder of the Lord Jesus. And we've learned in Hebrews already that Jesus is, well, he's just better, isn't he? John the Baptist here, the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, but Jesus, like he's better than the angels, he's better than Moses, he's better than the high priest of old, and he too is better than John the Baptist. That's part of what we're meant to see here. Because this one who's about to be born, he will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. It is indeed the birth of Jesus. So we're going to look at three things, three simple things really. We're going to see the greeting as the angel comes to Mary. We're going to see the announcement that's brought. 
And then we're going to see the response of Mary. Those three things simply. Let's look first to the greeting, shall we? <coughs> and as we look at the greeting, we notice that the greeting itself comes in time and place. And of course, we, we, we hear that and we go, well, of course it does, Chris. But it's good for us to be reminded of those simple things because Luke sets the context for us geographically and historically. And he does so as a simple reminder, and it's something that we need to be reminded of, that the Christian faith is a historical faith. Again, this is important. It's especially important for you young people who are going to be called to stand for the truth of the Word of God as you stand against the world around you who continue to make fun of and to mock you believing things like this, like the birth, like the virgin birth of a child. How could you believe such a thing? But it's important for us to remember that even as we share the gospel, what we are sharing is not just our experience of it, it's not just what I believe God has done in, in my heart or even in my life. That's great. That's wonderful. And we can and we should do that. But the gospel, the Christian faith, is rooted in that which has taken place in history. And if not for that, we should be, as Paul even mentioned about the, about the resurrection of Christ, we should be the most to be pitied. The same is true concerning the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus. Luke roots it in history, geographically, in place and in time. The Christian faith is a historical faith. And so Luke does just that. It's the sixth month of a relative Elizabeth's pregnancy. And Gabriel, that angel, that same angel who brought the announcement to Zechariah concerning John in the very first part of this chapter, is the same one who sent to, uh, to sent from God to this to this city in Galilee, this city city named Nazareth. Again, this insignificant village. It's rural, and in fact, it's interesting. Luke probably adds that it's in Galilee, because if he hadn't added that it was in Galilee, the the readers, the original readers probably wouldn't even have known where it was. That's how insignificant Nazareth was. And of course, the, the, the reason for this angel being sent was to bring some news, yes. But he brings this news to a virgin, to this virgin named Mary. And not only was the village itself insignificant, but so was this young woman. Really, for all intents and purposes, she's a nobody. She's a young woman. She's betrothed to a man named Joseph. And at this point, without, without us knowing what the announcement is going to be, what's it all, what it all is going to entail, the fact that she's a virgin doesn't even really mean that much to us. Because if, without knowing what the angel is going to say, who cares? Because after all, it would be normal that a young woman be a virgin because she's only now just betrothed. In this culture, this would have been expected. She's not yet married. So why give us this type of information? Well, we're being given this type of information because that information is important. Because it's part of the announcement. It's part of the wonder of what's going to be told. And, and when we think about in those times, back in Mary's time, we usually think, okay, well, betrothal is a lot like our engagement period. And there are some similarities there. 
and that might be appropriate to do so. But there are also some major differences between an ancient betrothal and a modern-day engagement. Uh, they're not quite as much as like as we, as we think they are because in a, a, the betrothal would, would take place, and when it did take place, there was a commitment made. In fact, there was a ceremony, and there was a formal witnessed agreement. A bride price was named, a bride price was paid, and from that time on, the bride or the woman legally is the wife of the husband. And yet, the marriage ceremony hadn't yet taken place. The, betroth the betrothal had. And then about a year later, the, the mar actual marriage uh, ceremony would take place. And then would be the time that the man would bring her into his home. So that's what that was like. And so, again, in some ways, there's that commitment but in our day, an engagement can be broken. There's no formal ceremony here, but uh, no vows taken in an engagement, no price paid. But in history, it had been. So in this betrothal, she actually becomes the man's wife, even though he's not brought her into his own home. So this is where, this is where Mary and Joseph are at this time in their relationship. Betrothed, but not yet Married. He's not taking her into his home. And that's important as we consider the announcement. That's important as we consider that she's going to be told that she's with child. What's she going to believe? Because Mary and Joseph had not yet been together, as it were. And so Joseph, or Jesus' genealogy, we're going to see that it's going to be traced in chapter 3. And it's going to be traced through Joseph... There is one seemingly uh, small detail in this text which turns out to be very, very significant. Notice with me, um, as we were reading there, it says of Joseph in verse 27 of the house of David. It's almost as if it's just stuck on there to Joseph's name. Joseph of the house of David, okay, it's part of the genealogy. Uh, is that really that big of a deal? Because after all, he didn't say much more than that. Just of the house of David. As if it's some insignificant thing, just a little bit of information. You really don't need this, but we're going to give it to you just so you can be more up to date with your history. But that's not it at all. It is given on purpose. And the purpose for which it's given is important. In Luke's gospel, he, he presents Jesus as the Savior of sinners. That's, the, that's his message and that's his purpose. Jesus as the Savior of sinners. And if we were to study this whole gospel together, as we've done as a church before several years ago, that, that, that purpose and that theme would become clear over and over and over again. And this would become clear, that one of the fundamental concepts uh, throughout the gospel, and then, and then as Luke continues that in the book of Acts, and remember, if, if you're kind of new to the New Testament maybe, um, Acts, while it follows John in our English Bibles, is actually the follow-up to Luke's gospel. Luke writes Acts. And he writes it as a follow-up, a continuing, <coughs> as a continuation of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ through His Spirit in the life of the apostles and in the life of His church. So Acts then is Luke's continuation of his gospel story. And one of the fundamental concepts that we see for Luke in both of those books is the kingdom of rule of 
David's greater son. One of his fundamental concepts is the kingdom of rule by this one who is to be born. The fact that it is just said, Joseph of David's house is not insignificant. Because this is the one to sit on the throne of David. Luke is going to introduce it. He's going to develop it. And we're going to, we're going to see it. That, that this promised David's son, who it, it, this one is, the promise is David's promised son who will rule on his throne. And even here, then at the very beginning, we get just the hint. We're, we're kind of being prepared for the significance of the announcement to come. And we're being prepared for the reality of this David's greater son. So the angel comes to Mary. And the angel says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And I just love that part. The name, the word greetings, we don't use that very often. But could you just imagine for a moment? And, and, and again, I said in the first word, I don't ask us to just imagine things very often. But just imagine this. We don't use greetings very often. But here you are. You are Mary. You are a young woman. You're betrothed to be married. You're a virgin, and this angel of God, Gabriel, appears before you and says, Greetings. What, what, what do you want from me? Why are you here? What, what, could I what could you possibly want to do with me? Little old me. And so she is, even as we're told. She's troubled. What does he mean by this? What, is the, what does the greetings mean? Greetings, O favored one. I mean, we can certainly understand Mary's reaction and response, can't we? Again, the text says she was greatly troubled. I get it. She was troubled not only at the sight of the angel, but she's also tried to discern what, what sort of greeting this might have been. What does it mean, O favored one? What's the Lord going to do with me? Or maybe she asked like we often do. Maybe, what's the Lord going to do to me? Why is Gabriel showing up at my House. I wonder for us if we might struggle with that. Not, not in the sense that if Gabriel showed up, I think we all would struggle with that. But uh, uh, with our view of the Lord, how we view the Lord, how would we respond to Him? How do we respond to Him? I've shared this before, but I remember, and this probably really only happened once or twice in my home growing up, but you know how some of those things happen. It's like I, uh, when I listen to my children now that they're grown and we talk about doing family devotions and my older daughter, she's like, oh my goodness, we did those every single day. And I'm going, sweet, she doesn't remember anything. We did it like two or three times a week and we thought we were doing great, right? Me in the same way, I'm looking back and it probably happened once or twice. My dad would come home from work and my little sister would say, uh, and he would tell about his day and that um, told us that he did surgery on somebody and my little sister would say, well, what did you do to him? And my dad would correct her and say, no, not what I did to him, but what I did for him. And I wonder how many of us view our Heavenly Father in that way. That we, every time we are walking through something that's difficult or every time we're walking through something where we're suffering, or that we don't understand something. We look at the Lord and we say, why are you doing something to me? Rather than thinking, Lord, what are you doing for me in this? We have a hard time believing Romans 8.28, I think. 
For in all things, God works together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Do we really believe that? I'm not saying that everything that we go through or everything that happens to us is good. But what I am saying that everything that happens to us, the Lord is using for our good. Can we trust Him in that way? Do we trust Him in that way? Just as to Zechariah, the, the angel, he brings these comforting words from Mary. And, he, and even there, we see God's goodness and His tenderness. Any time we see an angel appear, don't we? Because anytime we see an angel appear, what happens? People are afraid. Because we have this idea that angels are on the clouds playing their harps and they're cute and chubby and so forth. That's not an angel in the Scripture. They're powerful. They're wonderful. They're awesome. And there's fear. But He comforts Mary. Do not be afraid, Mary, He says, for you have found favor with God. God has bestowed grace on Mary. She's not asked for it. He's just done it. Unmerited. Noah, we remember Noah. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We're told Gideon found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And now, Mary. Mary now finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. And Luke, Luke uses this here in this gospel and then in Acts to describe what it is that God has done for sinners. How it is that God does what He does for sinners. And what is that? It's, it's grace. It's grace. And that word's also a big deal for Luke. In fact, Luke is the only one of the synoptic Gospels. When I say synoptic, um, if you don't know what that means, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all written with the same view, synoptic, same view, but John was written in a little bit different way. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke are often taken together, and then John is often taken separately. But of all three of the synoptic Gospels, Luke is the only one that uses the noun grace. Isn't that remarkable? And we might think that, I mean, we would think it might think it'd be everywhere in the New Testament. And yet neither Matthew nor Mark use it, just Luke. And not only here in the gospel, but he uses it throughout Acts as well. In fact, it's one of his main themes. It's one of his main themes. Remember I said earlier that Luke presents Jesus as the Savior of sinners. Well, how is that done? It's done by grace. By grace. God's grace for sinners like you and me. And Mary. And Mary. Mary finds favor. She finds grace with God. And, and, and this is interesting and it's corrective maybe to some, depending on our backgrounds. Mary has no power to dispense grace because Mary herself is the recipient of grace. She needs it as much as we do. And she finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. And we see that, we see that here by what's going to take place by what God's going to do for her and with her. And we might even say in some ways, even, even though it is for her and through her, we might even say to her in some sense. We're going to see that in a few moments. <laughs> and, <coughs> and remember, it, it's, it is the Lord who's doing what He's doing. And you say, well, of course Chris it is. 
But what the Lord is doing, He's doing in the context of a promise that He's made to her. Look at verse 28. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. So whatever, whatever the announcement's going to be, whatever the Lord is going to do with Mary, or for Mary, or to Mary, is in that context. In the context of Mary being favored. In the context of the Lord being with her. So she receives the announcement, having been encouraged that the Lord is with you. Well, what's the announcement? Behold, he says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Again, Mary's response, you're going to do what now? With me, to me, for me? And again, we're going to get to Mary's response in just a moment. And, and her response is, is priceless. We'll get there. It's so very practical. It's so very understandable. But I want us to pause here. And I want us to let the angel's words sink in. I want us to let the announcement sink in. You shall call his name Jesus, he says. Now, we may think, well, that's not the important part of the announcement. That's part of the important part of the announcement. Oh, yes, it is. This announcement, it is regal. It is royal. Yes, it's an announcement concerning a birth. It's not, but it's not just any mere baby announcement like we celebrate them today. This isn't a gender reveal announcement. This is a royal announcement of the coming king. And so for all its similarities that it has with Zach, uh, um, to Zacharias... It's different because this is the announcement of the coming king. And he says, you shall name him Jesus. And we said, again, what difference does that make? Jesus was a common enough name in the Old Testament, wasn't it? In ancient times? Yep. Or in the, in the, in the early church, in the New Testament, and so forth. Absolutely it was. Throughout history, it's a common enough name. Yes, indeed, it is. But it's packed with meaning. Packed with meaning. See, it comes from a compound word, which many names do. It comes from Yah. And as soon as I say Yah, many of you probably think, oh, like Yahweh. You're exactly right. It comes from Yahweh. What does Yahweh mean? The covenant-keeping God. Yahweh is the name of the covenant-keeping God. And then Shua, which means to deliver. Yah Shua is His name. And we may say, well, that doesn't sound a lot like Jesus. In fact, if we say it faster, Yahshua, oh, that sounds a lot more like Joshua than it does Jesus. And I would say to you, you're exactly right because those are the same two names. How can those be the same two names, Jesus and Joshua? Well, when translated from Hebrew to the Greek, Yahshua becomes Jesus or Jesus, and then Jesus to English becomes Jesus. That's how we get Jesus. And then Yahshua from the Hebrew to the English, straight to the English, becomes Joshua. So they are. They are the same exact name. You say, okay, well that's neat, but this isn't just about names, is it? But the important thing is this. It's important what the name means. Remember we had Yah and Shua. We had the covenant-keeping God who delivers. That is the name of Jesus. He's the one who saves. He's the one who redeems. That's what his name means. And that's, the, that's what the one who is coming to do about this, this announcement is all about. It is about this one. 
So when we look from this standpoint, from Mary's standpoint, in Mary's time, this one, he's the one coming to deliver. He's the one they've been waiting for. From our time, he's the one who has come to deliver. Jesus, the Savior of sinners. And the Savior of sinners can't just be anyone. It must be the covenant-keeping God who saves in the flesh. He's going to be born as a man. This is part of the wonder of the incarnation. Of God in the flesh. Yeah, John the Baptist, who Luke had just told us about, as we, if we were to read the first part of chapter 1, he will be great before the Lord. We're told that of him. But this one, he's not going to be great before the Lord. This one is going to be great because he is the Lord. That's the wonder of this one. And, and it's interesting, the word great that's used here, <coughs> it's often used in the scriptures as a modifier, as an adjective. Um, but when it's used in the Old Testament by itself, it only refers to God. Only refers to God. Nothing else. And that's who Jesus is. He will be Great. He is God. He will be called the Son of the Most High. Again, notice the, the regal language, the royal language. He's the Son of God. He's the promised one to come. He's the one that they've been waiting for, of whom we just sang about, the long-expected Jesus. The prophet Micah says in chapter 5, he says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, who uh, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And then it goes on, and then listen to what it says. And he shall stand, and he shall shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for he shall be, and then here it is again, great to the ends of the earth. And that... That's Jesus. A king. The king. About to be born. This announcement is the heralding of the king to come. And it says, And the Lord God will give the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This, this is that Davidic sign. This is the one promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This, was, this is the one who shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is him. And for sure, here in Luke, of course, it's not all worked out yet. Of course not. It's not all explained yet. And even, even for us, as we read this, we read, okay, the, the king is coming. And for us, the king has come. But what all does that mean? Because here in Luke chapter 1, there's no mention here of how all that's going to be accomplished. There's no mention here in just Luke chapter 1 of what all that's going to mean for the people of God. We don't get into the theology of, of that. We don't get into the theology of the already and the not yet. And we don't, we don't get into what it's going to look like between the time between the first and the second coming of the Lord Jesus. But here's the point, And there is application for us today. It's simply and profoundly this. And we shouldn't miss it. And that is this one in Mary's time. This one who would reign in our time, he is reigning. He is reigning. His, and his kingdom shall have no end. 
And so the application for us, the encouragement for us, is that the King has come and He is reigning. Even today, in the midst of all that goes on in this world, we have a King who sits on the throne. <coughs> we have a King to whom we bow. We have a King who we worship. We have a King who we obey. It is King Jesus. And that King who came, He came with healing in His wings. He came to save His people. He came bringing the forgiveness of sin. He brought righteousness. And He rules and He reigns in that rule. And that reign extends beyond the borders of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. And that reign is forever and ever and ever. That's the... That's the import. That's the heaviness. That's the wonder. That's the glory of this announcement. Because that king, that king to whom the angel Gabriel is saying to Mary is about to come for us, he's already come. He's already come. But could you imagine for Mary? Could you imagine for Mary? And I, and I love her response. I love how personal it is. I love how practical it is. I love how honest she is. How will this be since I'm a virgin? I mean, Mary, Mary may have been from Nazareth. But she was no dummy. She knew biology. She may have been from a farm. She may have been from a little rural place and village, but she's apparently a lot smarter than a lot of people that live in 2023. She understood biology. She knew how things worked. She'd never known a man. And I find this so interesting. We don't know this from the text, but it is interesting to think about. Because when we think about Mary and what she knew and what she was expecting, I mean, we, sing, <coughs> we sing a minute ago, come thou long expected Jesus. And I always wonder how many of them were, were. I mean, Brandon asked for the children, did they give up? Did they stop hoping? How many? I mean, we know the remnant was there. We know that there were many who waited and were faithful. I wonder what Mary was like. Did Mary so expect the fulfillment of God's promises that even after 400 years of silence, that the fact that the Messiah was coming and would be born through her wasn't nearly as shocking as the very practical concern that she was pregnant? I wonder, isn't that interesting? Did she trust the Lord that deeply? We don't know that. But we do know what her first response is, don't we? How can that be? She gets it. How can it be that I'm going to have a child? Well, I mean, none of us in this room would blame her for that, asking that question, would we? It's a very good question. And it's a fair question. Because, to say the least, that would have been out of the ordinary. In fact, it would have been a miracle. Wouldn't it have been? And indeed... It was. Women who've never known a man don't have children. She's found to be with child. It must have been a miracle. You say, well, okay. It must have been a miracle. But if you don't have room in your worldview for miracles, if you've dismissed the reality that God can intervene and has intervened into the natural world and that He can do something supernatural, then yeah, guess what? 
you're going to have a problem with this text. I don't understand why we get so hot and bothered when there are people out there that do not know the Lord, that there are people out there that do not understand that God has acted in history and that He can perform miracles. I don't understand why we get so hot and bothered when they don't believe this text. They have no reason to believe the text because they've removed miracles from their worldview. But God is capable. Not only is He capable, this is exactly what took place. And this is exactly what Luke says took place. This is a miracle. It's what God's going to do with Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Not just a Son of God. Not just part of the sons and daughters of God as we are in Christ Jesus, but truly the Son of God, God Himself. That's who Jesus is. And isn't it interesting when we read through that, notice how Luke records it. Luke records it plainly with no equivocation and with no argument. Isn't that fascinating? He doesn't feel the need to say, look, I know this sounds crazy, but this is really going to happen. He doesn't see the need to go ahead and have an argument about why this is the case because God's going to do this and okay, let me tell you how He's going to do this. He doesn't do any of that. He just says this is going to take place. Even here in the introduction, in the announcement, it is presented as absolutely clear that the child would come through the power of the Holy Spirit and there's no real need to argue the point. In fact, that didn't even become a big deal in history until the need of, um, it, it, it didn't even come in need of defense until in history the person of Christ began to be attacked by those who denied the identity of Christ and denied the two natures of Christ in one person that we just confessed together just a little bit ago. That's when this started to be doubted. But here it's simply presented. This is what happened. And it's interesting too that Luke's purpose in an all, as an author, and I said it's to present Jesus as a Savior of sinners, and indeed that's the case. But from an academic standpoint, from an author standpoint, Luke's purpose was to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us. And so Luke has taken upon himself to tell us what has taken place is actually true. It's a historical account of the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is still attacked today. And it needs to be defended. Because it is necessary that Jesus take part in the nature of man and yet not in the corruption of man. The virgin birth is necessary for an orthodox, biblical understanding of the gospel. And we ought to stand for that truth. He is again the Son of God. And the angel continues... Your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing's impossible with God. So just as God blessed a barren woman with a child. Now Mary, with you, O child, God will bring a child through you, a virgin. It's almost as if, and I don't mean this flippantly at all. But I do feel like sometimes we read in the scripture where we go, you know, God just showing off here a little bit. Again, I don't mean that flippantly. But the way that these two things are given, it's almost as if we have the two things next to each other on purpose. Here's the story of what's going to take place with the birth of John the Baptist. 
a barren woman is going to give birth. And it's almost as Luke as if Luke is saying, and the Holy Spirit through Luke is saying, you think that's cool? Watch this. This one's coming through a virgin. Because the purpose is, is to show us the wonder and the glory of God. The power of God. That's why the author goes on to say, for nothing is impossible with God. So even as Jesus will be greater than John the Baptist, so will the miracle of the birth be greater than John the Baptist's birth. That's what we're being told here. And so Mary simply says, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. So there is that sense, isn't there, that God is doing something to her, but at the same time for her? And what a response by Mary. And see, when we see Mary appropriately, we can, without fear, of thinking that we're going to think something of Mary that we shouldn't think. We should think of Mary. We should read this and we should see her. We should go, this is a woman of faith. This is a woman of faith. Let it be done unto me, she says. For I am your servant. Oh, that I had that kind of faith. Let God do with whatever with me that he wants to do. Oh, that we all might be willing to say that. We've talked about that often at Trinity Grass. That's a scary prayer, isn't it? Do we trust him? Do we trust him enough to say that? Lord, do with me what you will. Lord, make me and mold me into the man, woman, or child that you'd want me to be. Whatever it takes. But when we do say that prayer, we can trust Him. He is our Father in heaven, so we can also ask Him, can't we? In the same breath, we can say, but Lord, please be gentle with me. Because I don't know if I can do it otherwise. Please be kind with me. But still yet, let it be done unto me. What faith, what trust. And think about what that meant for young Mary. Especially in that culture back then, who would have believed her? Sure, Mary. Angel appeared for you, before you. Think of the way others would have treated her. Mocked, made fun of, but a servant to the Lord. I'll do what you call me to do. And even though it may seem that it's being done to her, God is indeed doing it for her, isn't he? In God's good sweet, or in God's good and sweet providence, and in his absolute sovereignty, it is for her. What a blessing to Mary, the favored one, but it's not just for her, it's for the world also. Because why? Because this child she will bear is Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This child that will be born, and for us has been born, is Jesus, the covenant-keeping God who delivers. Let's pray, shall we? 
Our God in heaven, we thank you for the wonderful, wonderful news of the gospel, the exciting news of the gospel, the wonder of your word, the absolute power of your word. Um, even where we must confess that we, even we sometimes find it hard to believe. How could it be? But Lord, grant us faith, we pray. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, who is indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords, in whose name we pray. Amen. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body.